0: Food Audacity Podcast.
1: Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all having a lovely week. Thanks so much for joining. As always, you are tuned in to the Surtech webinar series. I am Catherine Mills. I am their operations engineer and digital strategist, which is a super fun. Um, today's episode, as you know, is a continuation of last week's. We are joined by Mr. Jim Crompton for How to Lie with Data, Part 2, Algorithms Behaving Badly. But before we kick everything off, wherever you happen to be listening from, go ahead and leave us a rate and review. And if you happen to be watching on YouTube, go ahead and click that little subscribe button for me right there. That way you can stay up to date on all things oil, energy, and of course, enhanced oil recovery. So Jim, good morning. I know we've been chatting a little bit before we kick it off. We have a lot to cover today and I'm super thrilled, but how are you doing this morning?
0: I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And, uh, again, thanks uh, to SurTech for the opportunity. Um, I'm, uh, I'm glad this topic gets some, some airtime because the other side, I mean, the, how fantastic and wonderful technology always is, you know, they, that's, that has massive market power. Uh, the skeptic skepticists of the bunch, uh, like myself sometimes, uh, don't get a, uh, a, a voice, but, um, uh, obviously it's it's a balancing act and um uh, it's great to be able to to share um you know that perspective.
1: Well, before we jump right into today's topic, you just released your third book and it's actually a tale of all of the different faces and personalities we see across the oil patch and it's quite relevant to 2020 because it's how we're pivoting. So can you give us a little bit of insights on that?
0: Thank you for the the plug. Um, the book's called <laughs> the Digital Canterbury Tales, and um, it's it's actually been over two years in the making. I've been thinking about all of this, but um, I using the metaphor of the famous what is it 16th century um, uh, tale by Geoffrey Chaucer of a bunch of pilgrims that go from London to Canterbury, and and the book is really a, a co- collection of the stories of all of those pilgrims and what their, what's in their heads what's their life what's their purpose on going on this uh, on this pilgrimage so I, I carried that over into um, modern day and that I have a fictional oil company and um, they are big looking at digital transformation and looking at a digital oil field and all the the new technology in the field and in the model building and remote operation centers all those sort of things but I each character within the story, and each from the CEO to the CTO to the CIO, all the C-suite stuff, CFO, down to lease operators and maintenance supervisors and um, and people like that, they, they have a, a different view of this. And I guess over my career, I've experienced a lot of those. I've tried to listen more than I talk, which is why I can get smarter than most people, because I'm not talking all the time. Um, but in that they have their perspectives, and from their view, they're right. And the, the issues they see whether it's excitement or fear, um, uncertainty, don't have the skill set, can't wait to do this all of those different things are true. And that's what makes up the change management challenge, not the technology challenge so much, but the, the changing the organizational culture challenge. And you talked about a pivot, and that this is big time. I mean, you know, if we're if we're going from a pro-growth mode to a pro-profit mode, and be careful about our pennies, um, you know, there's there's very large cultural shifts are going to have to be. We're going to rely on technology instead of as many people, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's this. I think it's relevant because those those changes are are perceived differently by just about everybody in the company. And if you don't listen to them, you either have to throw them out or maybe listen and, and adapt your approach.
1: I think that's awesome. Well, we will be sure to link all of your books down in the show notes and, uh, you know, just make sure that everybody can easily find the digital Canterbury Tales. So jumping into today's topic, Jim, you have brought us conspiracy theories, uncertainty, risk. You have brought us algorithms behaving badly. So I'm going to let you go ahead and share your screen. We've got a lot to get through today. And, you know, this is how to lie with data.
0: Can you see the screen? Are we up and running?
1: Oh, yeah, we are up and running.
0: So I think you've got a question for me to, uh, to start off with from last week. I
1: night. sure do. So from last week, kind of leading you into everything. The term lying is a pretty loaded and is, the, excuse me, the term lying is pretty loaded and suggests an intent to deceive there may be a need to distinguish interpretations and visualizations made with uncertainty that may be wrong, but well-intentioned uh, versus visualizations with the intent to deceive. So my opinion of that is that the road to hell is all paved with good intentions.
0: That's Care a, that's to comment? A good, no, that's a good, good um, perspective. And it's a good question because I mean, I, in choosing the word, how to lie with data, I knew it was a loaded term. Um, And I know, you know, it, it potentially controversial and people will say, well, you know, he's, he's overemphasizing a different sort of problem. And, and I, and I I get that. I I mean, I used it intentionally because uh, I wanted to get people's attention. There's a little shock value in, uh, in what we're trying to talk about, but, I just see this trend going on, and uh, whether you're a young student um, c- taking my class and with the intention of trying to improve their programming skills, which I really don't help them very much with, or or somebody else, there's a there's a drive to to focus on this thing. I mean, there is a professionalism problem about intentional lying, and and that unfortunately does exist, and. Um, we have to learn how to deal with that. But, but I am talking about the unintentional type that the questioner was bringing up the, uh, the times with, when you're dealing with uncertainty, you're dealing with a data set that isn't exactly everything you want it to be. You're dealing, but instead you kind of believe that the technology will sort it all out, that you can build a better model and it will take care of all of these sort of challenges. And then we have this belief that because it's super cool algorithm, that the answer is going to be right when maybe some of the inputs aren't very good. That's that's what I want both the audience to recognize and be a little skeptical. I mean that um, you know, that, that part of it is you know ask questions of the model, ask questions of the rest of that, as well as the analyst to ask questions of that as they are building it. Um, uh, the you know the my first slide here just talks about you know we have this amazing. Belief, you know, a lot of us, except for the, maybe the Luddites that sit in the world, that technology is all good and that technology will always solve the problem, and that um, you know, even you know, I've I've got two young uh, grandsons and and they are learning just so much, but they they've always got a screen in front of them and they always are, you know, the kind of dealing with this stuff. Um, you know, many years ago, I I heard that I was talking to a teacher and they said. We can't use the word clockwise anymore in the classroom, uh, and unless it's a meteorological, you know, talking about weather systems or something, because nobody has a watch. And uh, you know, now we've gone from looking at our phones to tell what time it is to just asking the smart, uh, you know, terminal uh, you know, that's sitting on the cabinet. said, uh, you know, uh, so that the rest of this and this is and we are growing up, and the industry is growing up in the digital oil field the last twenty years, based on this implicit relationship with technology. Now, you know me, I'm a science fiction nut, and, you know, from the Star Trek, you know, resistance is futile. Um, And it is. I mean, technology will be part of what we're trying to do. I'm just saying, wait a minute, be careful. Don't always rush into this. Um, And sometimes that technology or your use of the technology, your role with the technology, you need to be careful about putting about some of these certain issues about um, about data, about bias from a statistical perspective, not a, a personal moral sort of perspective. And and uncertainty, these, these, these are tough issues. And the correlation is not causation is an important one. So let's get to our conspiracy theory that you've been waiting for for a while. Oh, week. yes,
1: I'm so excited for this one.
0: So, um, and, and this is obviously a very timely topic about uh Covid cases and what causes Covid cases, uh, and, and actually this is based on something that really uh, is going on. Uh, particularly, the story I read and followed this was uh, was in the United Kingdom, where there was a, a theory about Wi-Fi. I mean, uh, uh, that uh, uh, generation you know five was coming in, 5G was coming in here and that and all of these new cell phone towers were coming up in the neighborhood. And it was actually the radio transmission from these new cell towers that somehow was causing uh, the, the explosion and growth of, of the, the COVID virus infections. So-, so this, Hold on, can, the
1: cell towers were causing COVID-19?
0: Well, the radio transmissions from them were ca- affecting your brain and somehow that was happening. Yeah, and there was there was actually protests neighborhood protests, there was actually some vandalism of cell towers. I mean, this this was getting a little crazy. Uh, and th- this was the early part of this year. Uh, and it just got me into thinking that this, this was a really good correlation is not causation problem. Mm-hmm. It's a really good, almost in a sense, if you're statistically working on this, how to overfit a model, how to, you know, we say we got 10 different variables on a problem, we want to use all that data to build our model. Well, that you can overfit a model, and and the more data sometimes make the makes the worst fit, and and because some of these things are, of the what we think are independent variables are actually related to each other, and and they are not independent per se. So you go through principal component analysis and all kinds of other, you know, fancy things to just get the right parameters. But if you don't, you can begin to get some pretty interesting sort of correlations. So here, map the United States density of COVID cases this is kind of on a per capita basis. So you've got the whole normalization sort of thing going on here with regard to that, you can see the, you know, the large percentage uh, in the um, New York, uh, New Jersey sort of area where was the first really bad, you know, kind of hit. Uh, you've got California with its persistent problems and you've got the South with uh, mm-hmm. with all kinds of different things. Now you do also have the, um, where the Native American population, the, the reservations are in, in yep. New Mexico and Arizona, uh, that's kind of a little bit of a different, uh, an outlier, if you will. But how, if I'm going in here and I'm trying to find a correlation, what is it that has caused all of this sort of stuff?
1: Well, the media. My, <laughs> the,
0: the, the media attention to things that are happening is, is an amplifier, uh, without, <laughs> without, without a, a doubt. But let's let's just take another parameter. Let's let's take the Verizon 5G coverage map. Let, you know I'm now bringing that problem that was happening in the UK into um, into the US. Well, and you could see a, a good, a really strong correlation around New York, New Jersey, Boston sort of area. You can see it, uh, you know, the uh, very large, uh, um, you know, growth of this uh, this service in California, and then you can actually see it in the south from Florida all the way through the gulf coast into texas and you could you know you could do a spatial correlation analysis and you could actually find a, a correlation between verizon 5g coverage and covid density cases now you going to believe that is that is that's a correlation is it a causation
1: i'm going to get a tinfoil hat and start wearing it
0: <laughs> that's uh, exactly right that's what you got to do um, and then you know, put put it around your windows and everything like that, and and try to try to go away from it. But both of these things, you know, you know the density of, of COVID pop of infections is related to population density. Mm-hmm. And here's the population density, and you can see this is really the variable that unites those other two things. I mean, why why does Verizon put all uh, its uh, cell towers where it does? It's because that's where their people, that's where their customers, that's where their people would, you know, sign up for their service. So it's related to population density. COVID is related to population density, and they none of them are related to each other. So um, unfortunately, Wi-Fi, you know, five G is not causing COVID infection. So I'm going to debunk that conspiracy theory right away.
1: Well, but, thank um, you. <laughs>
0: I'll offer you up another one just to get started here. If you look at the density of Domino's pizza locations stores, you see that same uh, you know sort of pattern with regard to this. Again, except for the maybe the the Native American uh, reservations, they, I guess they don't like Domino's pizza so much. But if you look through the rest <laughs> of this, it's really Domino's pizza that's causing five G infections, not five G. Be well, careful. There might be some Let's truth behind it. this one. You you never know, right? You never
1: can tell, right?
0: (laughs) Until the before
1: Dominoes sues me.
0: (laughs) There's all the studies that you have to do to figure out what it is. But be careful about that. I mean, there's a lot. There's several really cool websites that talk about all of these correlation ones, and they're they're funny. You could get good jokes and get a good laugh around it. But when you get down to something that you're talking about, you know, are you on a more mundane or kind of technical level? doing the same thing and, and overfitting your model and, and, and over biasing the results based on things that are really aren't independent variables as you kind of build this. And then coming up with the, you know, what well, my R squared is 0.98. I mean, I got a really good model. Well, maybe you've got a really good correlation, but do you have a really good predictive model? <laughs> so we're going to let's, let's jump into, um, um, you know, put the core, uh, the, the conspiracy theories behind. It, this is another one, you know, I, and I, I'm a big fan, a big, big interest in data visualization. Um, well, data
1: visualization, I was going to ask you, we tend to speak in line graphs and, you know, uh, numerical modeling, simulation, things like that. And to your point earlier, more data isn't necessarily the the solution. It's typically big data has bad data. So, breaking out visually can still be just as deceptive if you aren't breaking down the uncertainty.
0: Without a doubt. Um, there, there's no question that that is the challenge because um, with the, the kind of data sets we have you know, now, and they're, they're very large data sets. I'm, whether you call them big data, that's kind of a buzzword that means whatever you want it to mean. But uh, yep. we are dealing with lots of data and we are dealing with lots of different kinds of data. So the challenge of how do I visualize it? I mean, we've, you know, I think there, there actually is actually a story in my uh, in my book about a young petroleum engineer by the name of Lauren, who uh, says, you know, it's, it's oh, damn, I just broke Excel, right? And it's someone who's going back to the our, our our tool of choice, which is Excel, and the tabular forms of data that we're used to doing. And all of a sudden, we just get too much of it. And we have to we, we have to go beyond, as you said, the, the bar charts, the pie charts, the line charts, the tabular uh, representations of data, because there's just so much of it that the patterns that we're trying to bring out and the stories we're trying to tell, we can't do it that way. Uh, the good news is there are tools. There's all kinds of really cool things nowadays to try different visualizations, to see if they don't tell that story that we're trying to sell. Because we only have 10 minutes in front of the executives, or we only have this three-slide deck on the elevator speech that, um, you know, the management consultants have, you know, boiled into our brains as the only way of telling a story. Less uh, is more. But, but frequently, we only have a little bit of time to tell a complex story. So visualization is our tool to do that. There And there's some really, really good ones. Um this, this one I thought would – I, I did got especially for you because um, –
1: Because of Mississippi being the first one on there.
0: You got it. Uh, yeah. you've seen, <laughs> you're already drawn to this story here. So what this is is how long can you live on a million dollars retirement in every state? So if I'm 65 years old and I got a million dollars from working for my whole career with an uh, oil company, and I want to figure out where to go, well, I could choose – Hawaii and if i I would go down there I'd be cool living on the beach and um, you know sipping all the on all those fancy cocktails and uh, the coconuts and everything all the rest of that the trouble is in only about 13 years and one month all my money goes away but I can instead I could go to Mississippi and I can live for 25 and a half years on that money before it all dries up
1: and you know that we sit those same cocktails on the front porch while a tornado is coming in and everyone is fine.
0: Hurricane party. Something. I, I, you know, I, that definitely with regard to that. So, but <laughs> we'll this even is let that,
1: you shoot something.
0: <laughs> this is actually a good visualization, I think, of showing you know, at least that issue of, you know, you got cost of living, you know, uh, clearly boiled in here. You got your million dollars. You got your retirement lifespan. You've got all kinds of different things. So, this this is actually a pretty good visualization I think um, that this how much is a website that does a lot of really cool things like this there's several of them that you can look at and, and get an idea of how to display complex data in a different way you now Colorado here is is a little expensive and i think particularly if you lived along the front range it's it's even more than if you lived in western colorado but it, it's kind of it relatively in the middle wyoming is is clearly better but then you got to put quality of life i mean Uh, and again that's personal that's not a a a, a qualitative quantitative metric that says that you know Mississippi is better than Hawaii or or any other sort of state you pick where you like to live
1: Mississippi uh, is better than Hawaii just so you
0: know there you go yeah well (laughs) Catherine Catherine has her vote in there for sure (laughs) but here here this is just a way of displaying different kinds of data complex story many different sort of variables but this is an easy way to kind of uh, visualize it And, and you just kind of look out and and you can at least get one element of that decision about when, where should I retire? Mm-hmm. People also like to use pictures, and 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 these these sort of pictures are, I mean, they're a double edged sword too. I mean, uh, you, they can. This picture is absolutely true. That uh, the three wealthiest um, uh, uh, people, and you know, they are men, they're white males in the United States, they now have more wealth than more than the bottom half of the country combined. So draw a picture like this and it's, you know, it's it gets you an image, and, and images are important. The human brain is drawn to images. You, you'll remember this a lot longer than if I, you know, put a, you know, some bar chart or, or something like that to talk about wealth inequality, but it also can be, with, with images, you can draw emotions, And and that was obviously this first question. When I talked about lying, that's an emotive word, and uh, and you can create this. Most of these images have emotive, you know, kind of uh, background sort of relationships with them. And so do you aspire to be one of those three by looking at this picture? Or do you uh, feel that you're in the bottom half and you, uh, through the wealth inequality, that somehow these three people are evil? Um, you, you can look at this picture and form totally different opinions from your emotion yet the data is right it's not fake news but it is different people will come away with those different things so we have to be prepared we have to be careful on the visualization does it tell the story accurately Mm -hmm. does it really use the data that's relevant and does does the audience carry away the message both statistically and our brains don't respond to data all that much but they really relate to patterns and they really can form strong associations with this so on one hand you'll remember this for a long time on the other hand you will carry away also some emotion that may be what you want them to do or and of course politicians and and media types and the rest of that are great at these images sorts of things but is it the right thing that you want to do
1: and that's a really good point you're making. Data comes with emotion and the images just spike it. So what are you really presenting here?
0: Right. And and good presenters carry, I mean, know how to get to your emotions. They know how to go beyond just the data and, and to carry it away that emotional impact that, uh, that they want them to have. Now, if you go back and, and let's just take it back to the oil and gas industry. When I was just starting out as an interpreter, I think I told this story last time. I didn't have a whole lot of data, but I had a mentor who told me, taught me how to contour maps with very little data points, but make them look like, you know, a very attractive prospect. Mm-hmm. You know, so, what I was, the emotion I wanted them to carry away with is, let's invest in Jim's prospect and drill a well.
1: Yeah, excitement.
0: That's the emotion. That uh, enthusiasm. Excitement, uh, optimism, confidence—all the rest of those sorts of things. <clears throat> now, now, with the the tools we have, and again, this this is a place we're not we're not lacking tools. Uh, we have applications like Spotfire from Tibco, uh, Power BI from Microsoft, um, Click, and Tableau, and and numbers of others of of different things that have come on, and they allow us to build these dashboards that'd be to show a whole, an whole an awful lot of data um, actually one of my homework assignments in my classes is you know draw a management dashboard with all the relevant sort of information on it and uh, and actually the students did a really good job then I asked them to connect that dashboard with all the underlying systems and that's just that's too complicated it, it's very very difficult uh, and you know to do that because this data comes from so many places yet visually this mashup this this visual integration of all of these different data types helps simplify a bit the very, very complex problems, but still these things can become overwhelming and the complexity of this. I mean, you look at all this and said, well, what's the story? You know, is is this a good news or is bad news? Uh, This probably is just an example of too many data types and, and too many different ways of, of displaying all of this data. So, you know, you can, Again, do I want to use everything I have in order to try to, to get my story across or do I, you know, limit it and I just bring out a few things or I have the ability to drill down from one chart into a more detailed information or whatever it is. So, of course, right now, dashboards are the thing. Everybody's looking at their screens all day long and they are not looking so much at the tabular Spotfire data or the line charts from the, the SCADA information or whatever. They're looking at these kinds of things. Mm-hmm these are actually very easy to build uh, and they're yes. not only you have these commercial tools, you've got, you know, libraries in, in Python and R and stuff like that. And you can build your own uh, pretty easily. Uh, but the, 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 story is, is, isn't the challenge in how to build the screens it, where does the data come from? Is it trusted data? Can I deal with, uh, you know, the, the, the overall things i uh, I had a I have a professor from University of Tulsa who's doing one of my guest lectures and, and he's doing artificial lift optimization but he made a great uh, statement in one of his lectures he says you know the, the the code is only part of the solution and and I thought that was just so perfect because it really gets into this issue of going back and making sure the data is sufficient to build that and, and don't rely on the code to paper over you know a lot of issues that are, are are with the data so i'm going to get into this issue of, of bias but again I, this is one of those terms like lying that i got to be careful about i'm not talking about human bias i'm not well, talking actually
1: about we just got a question on bias real fast sure. um so yep. maybe you can work it in for us but can our personal bias truly um affect our ability to make good
0: decisions um I'm not a psychologist, but my short answer to that is, hell yes. Um, <laughs> and I, just as I, I told the story about me, that my personal bias was I wanted to get a well drilled. I wanted to find oil. Mm-hmm. So, and I was very confident, you know, you can work in a basin for, you know, months to years and really feel like, you know, it, uh, it, the next well is really going to hit, right? So my personal bias, my personal enthusiasm was there's oil there. And, and I want to I get somebody to drill a well and prove that I was right. <clears throat> that's actually a, um, a psychological uh, aspect called confirmation bias. So I'll, we'll get into it in just a second. Yep. But, uh, but without a doubt, yes. And, and I, I think that's one of the things where this becomes unintentional, is that I believe so much in something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the data and I'm going to build a model to make it prove my, my thought going in. Well, everybody, you know, loves um, uh, Dilbert cartoons, if you, you know, go to the rest of this stuff. And and but this one is just really good talking about introducing this idea about bias. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think that um, we, we need to appreciate, and I, I talked a little bit about normal distributions and uh, the importance of averages or when you don't have uh, normal distributions of data. Um, if we kind of look at what, you know, the concept of of data is. And we look at it from a scientific principle perspective. Um, You know, a a pure scientific experiment would go, would look at all of the possible uh, inputs that you could have. And I want to do all of the experiments that all, all involve all of those inputs. And I want to do them in a intentionally random fashion. And with that, I will get, I'll come up with a normal distribution and I'll be able to apply Traditional statistics, you know, to my uh, approach—that's science. Um, Engineers don't do science. Engineers are different than scientists. Like I said, we—I think we talked about the story last week. If you went in and said to your production manager, "I want to drill a real scientific distribution of wells in our lease property just to get the data so I can do a distribution," you get fired, right? (laughs) Engineers want to solve a problem. I want to drill a well in the good place and find oil, and they're going to—they're not going to look at all possible distributions. They're not going to look at all possible experiments. They're going to find what they think is a good one, and they're going to drill a whole bunch of wells just like that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe somebody comes in with a, a, a let's drill the laterals a, a mile and a half instead of a mile, or let's use a whole lot more pressure and prop in order to do these stages. And then everybody that comes up with a little bit better results, so we drill a hundred wells that way. So we, we almost intentionally go at this problem from a, a non-scientific approach because as engineers we want good results most of the time or else we get fired, right? Uh, it, or, and we want to uh, produce to our management an investment return immediately, not wait for two years and 100 wells you drilled across your property. So we, we don't approach this statistical problem you um, know, in, in a broad scientific principle manner. We do it in a, in almost an unintentionally biased manner in the kind of data that we record. And in that, we've got, a, we've got an idea. Uh, we've got an opinion of what works. Maybe we've got that opinion from um, other wells in another basin or something like that that was successful. Maybe that's what our favorite oil field uh, service company has their experience tells them to do it Such and such a way, so we go with that, and we and we put a lot of money into a a limited variety of experiments, Mm -hmm. which is you know commercially understandable. That's why that's what an engineer is paid for is to solve a problem, and we're good at that. And then is but you what you end up with then is an insufficient data set to do some of the statistical analysis that we're trying to do. So when I use the term bias and I have to thank Dr. Bill Eustace for this. He he introduced me to a couple of books on how to lie with statistics. There there's some oh, good. really good short ones that um, uh, you know that are that that are really helpful. And then on the other side, you've got books that say how to tell a good story with data. So you know there's there are techniques like this that are are, are good. But I, that's what I learned. This word "statisticate" uh, or I can't even pronounce it. Uh, statistically uh, but with the data and it it is this the idea that your data is inherent in, nobody has a perfect data set we talked about no such thing as a perfect model where there's no such thing as a perfect data set either uh, but what's good enough to get some input from in being skeptical about that data set you need to worry about bias and this is statistical bias sampling theory statistical errors sources of bias that you know do I have, a whole but several parameters are really related to each other, and I'm over, uh, I'm overweighting a certain you know kind of uh, parameters that go through this. And then when I get to just showing that data, I mean there's so many poor ways, and, and my students are are a good example of this. As they will do great work, they will understand the the engineering problem, and they'll produce some of the crummiest graphs you have ever seen in your life. You know they're. They, the, the graphs are mislabeled, the font size is too big, the color scheme is crazy, and they just, they confuse you with their good work instead of enlightening you with what you you try to mean through all of that.
1: So great to hear that coming out of Colorado School of Mines.
0: <laughs> and if, if a Mines grad is, has trouble, I, I've seen it in industry too. I've seen 20-year professionals just produce absolutely horrible graphics, and and that's one of the things that... Management's pretty good at, under, at knowing bad graphics really quickly. So that could turn somebody off from a really good proposal almost the first slide. So, um, you know, PowerPoint we live and die on, and uh, PowerPoint it is, uh, is one of the worst ways. Uh, there are some very, very experienced people in data visualization that can't stand PowerPoint, not because it isn't the same as analysts with Excel. They are useful tools, but they can be misused so easily. So just a little bit and get to that, the, your question about um, kind of, uh, can my own opinion influence the result and and, and get to this idea of bias. Well, he, the bias here, my definition is not malicious intent. It's not lying, but it's any systematic failure for a sample to not represent its population. Just like Dilbert's uh, the man, uh, dog bird, I guess, or catbird is what, you know, uh, essentially ma- taking one reading and is that what you want? And, but so really this idea of us not doing a scientific experiment in our drilling data, we, we do represent a systemic failure for a particular sample to represent its population. Uh, The average in a log normal distribution is not useful. It's not accurate to represent that whole data sample with the average or the mean, because it, you know, you, you have to do something that's a, you know, a, a lot more complicated in terms of representing it. So sampling theory really is at the heart of an awful lot of the problems that we have. And uh, when you get into this, there's, there's different kinds of biases with regard to this, there's implicit bias, which is this unconscious attribution of particular qualities to a, a member of a whole group. You know, that, that's not deliberately maliciously trying to mislead you that, but I have, I'm carrying my unconscious bias into what I am interpreting from the data with its uncertainties, with all the rest of this. And this is what, you know, this, this is a problem I'll get to at the end. we talk about algorithms behaving badly. It, you know, this, this is the sort of thing that if my database is a Google search database, if my um, database for facial recognition is a Google image database, uh, those things can actually carry unconscious biases uh, with regard to what they're trying to do. And you know, just to get uh, give you an idea of one of those kind of algorithms behaving badly, facial recognition. Facial recognition is largely developed by a bunch of young males that are either Caucasian or East Asian. They're sitting in Silicon Valley. They are, you know, they needed a training data set, so they took a bunch of pictures of themselves. And they, they use that on their facial algorithms and pretty soon they were pretty good at it. And yet they didn't label what they were trying to do. Now all of a sudden a police department uses a facial recognition algorithm on a bunch of police records. And guess what? The good guys are white and the bad guys are people of color. And, and that's a, an unconscious bias based on limitations of the data set they use to train their algorithm. Is their algorithm great? It's, it's incredible. Is there data set bias? Absolutely. So clearly we have to worry about things like this, and, and, and a lot of this stuff has shown up when some of this really amazing emerging technology hits the street, it, it, it find out that it really has a bias to it. Now explicit bias is the conscious level, and, but we're, I'm really trying to make a point about the, un, uh, the implicit bias sorts of things. Now to get what we were talking about before, confirmation bias. We like to see things that match our view of the world, or our hopeful view of the world. My, I was hoping that there was oil in that prospect that I I I put together, and actually I was right a couple times. I mean I, I did find some oil, <laughs> so I wasn't I I wasn't discredited as a real incompetent sort of interpreter. Not um, yet, no. <laughs> but I but back then, back if you look at the 1970s, 1980s, our wildcat success rate was about one in nine right so if I was right one or two times out of nine I was better than the average I, mean, I was still wrong seven times out of nine but that was uh, that, that didn't matter as long as I, I, I was able to in order to try to do that uh, my so I was looking for things I was trying to look I was tr- trying to look for a specific pattern I was trying to look for a trap a structural trap stratigraphic trap whatever it was within our data just like uh, you know today a uh, completion errors looking for a completion um, uh, program that's gonna produce a higher IP than the last one did. And they they're looking for that as they go through that. They they may not be looking at the total recovery of oil from that uh, lease. They may not be worrying about uh, 20, 30% decline curve analysis after that IP. They may not be looking at the fact that you're gonna have to put a pumping unit on that on that on that well you know, three to six months, you know, after the initial, after well is is being produced. Because they're looking for something. They're looking for high IP. Mm -hmm. And with that, we will find things that will confirm that. And we won't look at the bigger picture. And we won't look at the whole model. And we will will have a bias, the human bias, going in to interpret the data and we'll find things we want to find. But the real value of analytics is to find things that we didn't expect to find. So we have to be careful of this bias again so that we can learn more from the data set than we think we already know going in.
1: Do you promote drop analysis or resampling to help eliminate bias?
0: Um, Without a doubt. I mean, first of all, what I promote is data profiling, is go in. I mean, this is the boring part nobody likes to do. Go in and look at your data set just to see what is there. And to begin to understand gaps and to be, begin to, you might resample, you might uh, look at your outliers and say, oh, is this just a, uh, an error or is this an, a different pattern? You, 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 I, so a really important step at data profiling, and I make all my students do this in their projects, and it's not the most fun part of the project by any yes. means. This is that data management stuff you want somebody else to do for you, right? <laughs> and if, if you're in a company, you got a technician, that's what the technician does, right? Not you. Uh, but it's really important to understand what your data looks like, and are there systemic errors? You'll find out. I mean, particularly those that pull from public data sets. And this this is one that I know drives a lot of people crazy. Is they will go into you know the COGCC, Colorado uh, uh, Open Gov you know sort of data sets and all the data that has to be filed with the state. And you do this with the Railroad Commission. You can do it with oil and gas commissions in North Dakota, Wyoming, wherever. And you just take that data as is and build your models from but when you take a look at that data you're going to have problems with lack of standards lack of naming different units of measure uh just overall all sorts of problems of incomplete and inaccurately stored data but because the state doesn't have the resources to go in there clean all that up
1: yeah you (laughs) you might get
0: it from ihs market or you might get it from inversus drilling info you got to pay for their efforts to clean up and harmonize the data but uh, just using some of this public data before is, and then coming up with these great basin analysis sort of conclusion, you're dealing with a really dirty data set and you got to be careful what that is. So are there ways of uh, improving this? Absolutely. There are a lot of data processing techniques. You got to worry about them because they, in, they, they will shape your data to a certain uh, way that you want it to look like. But first of all, step one is understand your data and understand your own implicit biases. And that's hard. Frequently that takes someone else looking at your, your result. The look back analysis we talked about a little bit before is absolutely critical. Getting another set of eyes on your work helps to point out those biases in a constructive way. Not you knucklehead, you don't know what you're doing, but hey, look at this, you you kind of miss this, this idea or, or over every side, why did you filter this stuff out? You know, I, I like data analytics teams. I, I, I don't always like data science solo superstars uh, because I think that's the idea of the other set of eyes helps balance out the bias that we all have. I'm biased. I, I will go into it with making the same mistakes uh, after 40 plus years of, of working on these things. So I need someone to give me feedback in, in some sort of way as you build this. Well, another part of this, I just kind of talked about outliers. Um, there's dozens of these um, paradoxes and theorems and and different things that different statisticians over the years have kind of tripped across and then they name it after themselves so they can be famous. But um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, this is a, a good one, essentially, you know, is this one data set or several in, in terms of patterns? It, it's one data set. Now, if I, the one of the problems, and I think the opportunities, if you could do a good job of data profiling, you'll get an idea if you're dealing with one pattern or several. So almost before the correlation part of your data processing algorithm, you need a classification part of your algorithm. You know, if I got dogs and cats in my data set, before I begin to build an algorithm, I need to separate the dogs from the cats. Mm -hmm. And of course, when labeling, um, you could do that. And then the classification system uh, helps you. And then you begin to deal with this sort of systems. Simpsons paradox of, of looking at this stuff. So, you know, I can put a core, if I put this all together, I have a correlation that is uh, declining from uh, essentially left to right. But if I look at each of these data sets from uh, their own uh, pattern, Mm -hmm. you know, the the correlation is, is the opposite. So uh, understanding classification before correlation is to me uh, an important step. And you can recognize that with good data profile. Well, the, the whole point about this is that um, as an analyst, that we go in and we, we study all this data, we do the, the work, you're going to come up with a well uh, proposal or a completion program or, a, you know, a, even buying leases or, you know, whatever sort of uh, recommendation you're trying to make to management. You're in a situation of information asymmetry. And that, that's the, that brings the issue of having good storytelling as being critical, because you know the analyst who has spent the last six months pouring over all this data is in a position of more knowledge than the um, audience that they're presenting to. Now, sometimes they're a rookie analyst and they don't have that domain experience. That so the the, the information symmetry is the other way. You can present your great new plan to uh, some operations supervisor who drilled a well just like that 15 years ago and is going to say, sorry, son, you know, you know we tried that once and it didn't work. Uh, so the, this asymmetry could go both ways. Usually it's, you know, the the young analyst has a lot more data, has done a lot more of the statistical work. The, the manager may not even understand half the words that the guy's telling him when he's doing a surrogate vector, uh, you know, machine network, or he's using a random forest, or he's using a neural network. You know, the old manager may go, "Oh my God, I'm getting a headache." Right? So you <laughs> need to be careful with the vocabulary you use, because uh, that doesn't necessarily, you know, make it smarter to the to the to the manager. Where at the other hand, you have to recognize the power of experience. So, and I think it, again, the answer is a blend. Um, I'm not. I don't want to throw all the old guys out of the room just because they can't code very well. <laughs> um, I think they bring a perspective that's important. I don't want to ignore all the new technology that we're trying to do because that brings the opportunity to get more insight with all of this data that we have, particularly in places where we don't understand the physics as well as we need to. So it's that combination. It's the storytelling both ways. But this information is symmetry. The goal of data visualization, the goal of storytelling, the goal of all of this stuff is to balance this out. Mm-hmm. It's to provide information from one side to the other and then back again. If you got that, you are in good shape. If you leave the room and you still have an imbalance in, in some of this knowledge, too big a gap in the knowledge, then you probably aren't going to make bad decisions. Either you won't drill a good program or you will drill a bad program. And, um, and with that, you know, leads to um, maybe some of the issues that we've, we have today is that, um, you know, we now have, you know, we, it's not a lack of oil. That's the problem. It's lack of market.
1: Well, and there's also the from the comments survivorship bias. So we mm-hmm. tend to talk about all the successes and maybe the solution out of this pivot is examining the failures.
0: Um, one of my big frustrations is towards the end of my career with, uh, uh, with a large oil company. Uh, I worked with a young uh, analyst and we, we wrote a really good paper called, uh, it was lessons learned from the past 10 years of the digital oil field. And we got it, uh, we proposed it to an SB conference. They thought it was great. They're going to make us keynote speakers, it, it, but it was telling some of the bad stuff that happened, right? Some of the less than successful stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, which is what, I mean, people go to conferences, and they're dying for that. I mean, I want to hear an operator. I want to hear an operator tell about what didn't work. I mean, that's the most popular speaker that, that, uh, the conferences kind of have yet the paper got spiked by my own management, uh, because they didn't want to share that. Uh, and I was at a pretty high level, you know, within the company so that I could, um, you know, I had some influence. I had some friends at court, but, um, you know, there was one guy who said, I just, I just, and he was a senior manager. He was a boss over the program. He said, I don't want to, I don't want to show the dirty laundry is essentially what they said. So, uh, though, and there's whether it's a lawyer for intellectual property, whether it's a manager who wants to only look good, uh, there's an awful lot of that filtering going on in the publications that we have in our industry because we don't like to show the dirty laundry. But it's, it's a dirty laundry by which we learn to get better. And unfortunately, we just have a, a, a bias within human beings that only want to look good, right? Right. Um, I was getting ready to retire, so I didn't care. Uh, But (laughs) I wanted to share the whole story. And, uh, but that wasn't an easy thing to do. And it wasn't just my company. It was, I see it everywhere. And you, you know, I'm on conference committees all the time. And they said, let's find the operator paper that says what, what didn't work within their program. Well, then you never get anybody to do it. uh, Well, I
1: will say, Jim, we're in another changing of the guard. We're in a crew change because of this pivot. So, if we could get more of the old guard speaking up about the failures and the lessons learned i think we'd have a better chance of not chasing our own tail outside of this pivot
0: so i'm volunteer number one i'm not perfect right and and i I will share some of the dumb things that i've done over my career
1: i would love to get a group of y'all together for a panel
0: (laughs) that would be good that would be good um Last point, And I know we're t- kind of at the end of our time here again, and this is where I want to conclude with the fact that, you know, I think this stuff is, I mean, I, I've ex- I've already told my my story about the problems of really trying to understand data before you uh, get into this and you build the model. We are now to the point where there's this tremendous reliance on algorithms. You know, again, our algorithms taking over the world. And um, the answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, resistance is futile. Um, You don't even know if you're talking to a human being when you call a a help desk, you know, sort of thing for a a consumer product anymore. Uh, And so this idea of we are not only working with algorithms, we are almost delegating huge tasks to algorithms. Um, There are algorithms that will screen applicants for someone trying to get a job. There are algorithms that will screen parolees, whether or not they get parole from prison there are algorithms that will look at your uh, loan requests to see whether or not the bank's going to lend you money. And we, we have all of these sort of things that are, I mean, there are algorithms that will, will look at uh, 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 the police will look at in terms of cases of who they're going to go try to uh, investigate to see if they did a crime or not. And these aren't all these, so these algorithms are our coworkers or sometimes our bosses. We don't like to admit that, but, you know, they, we just take that data and, and take it as gospel and move on. But you know, there is a, a dark side to this over-reliance, I think, on algorithms. Now, I know we got a whole lot of data, and we want to save money, and algorithms work seven by 24 and never take a vacation, they never get sick. So the, there's a whole thing about automation and, and autonomy within, uh, you know, industries. There's two and a half million robots building cars and, and different things around the world. So we, you know, they are there and they help make our economy run. But you know, there was just an article in Information Week this uh, this month uh, that was talking about the security liability and social risk of artificial intelligence. Where we're starting to get to the point where we're saying we're seeing enough problems. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Uber autonomous car that runs over the jaywalker in Phoenix, and uh, we're we're starting to see the that some of this stuff isn't perfect just like humans aren't perfect. The algorithms aren't perfect. And the AI isn't perfect. And you know there are you know, security risks, there's liability risks, there are social risks, as you try to go through these things. So just, and just a couple of examples here, um, and, I, and I have not done anywhere near an exhaustive search, these are only a few uh, little things to think about. That there, there's this real risk of turning over decisions to machines that are also biased. Now, there's a challenge in turning decisions over to humans who are biased. I'm, uh, don't get me wrong; that we're not, uh, we, we're we're not we have that problem in in spades as well. But here is just an example um, uh, from this book by two MIT researchers, um, that was looking at searches for names more common to afro Americans were more likely to show up ads. For bail bondsmen, for arrests, for the rest of that, then searches for names mostly associated with whites. So a racial bias in a search algorithm, and it's in Google. It's not some deliberate thing. It's based on all of the data that we have, and you know this this racial bias uh, is amplified because it's in our society. And mm-hmm. the whole. If, on the other hand, you would search for words like scientist or grandmother. And you'll get more often than not an overwhelming number of images of white people. And and so you look at that stuff and you go, Oh my God, what, what's happening this last year. um, And this is the English educational system. When you finish what is their equivalent of high school and you want to move on to college, you take a series of exams called Mm A-levels. And uh, the number of A-levels that you get kind of depends on what schools accept you, et cetera. It's been a long-standing tradition. For generations. But this year, because of COVID, the students couldn't go to class and take these exams. So you had to have something in place for who, what, what students were going to go into what, uh, what, what universities this fall. So what do you do? I, I'm, I'm going to build an algorithm. And so the, the National Educational uh, Council in, in Britain, this is pretty much in England, uh, build an algorithm, and they based on other kinds of data. I mean, teacher recommendations, historical, you know, sc- uh, test scores for the student, but also to normalize it out, a, 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 an historical balancing of what that school normally did or what that area normally did, et cetera. And what these algorithms did, it essentially lowered the scores of almost half the students. Really? And, it, you know, there have been huge, obviously, political protests. ahead of that yeah. uh, That educational council has had to step down. They recognized that some of the data sets, the data uh, attributes they were using, we really were biased against poorer areas or poorer schools and the rest of that. And, you know, it, it really was a, a huge fluff. I mean, if, if you went around, around looking at this thing. And they've gone back and they've thrown out the algorithm and they're, they're kind of going on, on teacher-based recommendations. Well, I alluded to, uh, you know, the story about facial recognition. And, you know, this is just a little bit more of, of that kind of a theme. And this is just one of those many uh, facial recognition sort of algorithms that you go through this. But I want to kind of go get into the consequences of it. So, again, I'm going to use this, um, this algorithm, this one called COMPASS, and I'm going to help me uh, assign risk, assign risk of essentially... Uh, if I let somebody out, will they reoffend? Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at this stuff and I'm going to run it on, on both of these faces and, and look at their histories and all the And, um, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Prater gets a, a low risk of number three and miss, uh, miss Borden gets a high risk of eight. Um, and you know, why, why was that? Well, if you go back and look at the history, well, um, uh, miss Borden had four misdemeanors in, in her record. Uh, but, She was actually did earn parole and over the next two years never re-offended. She was was a good citizen after uh, she learned her lesson in prison. Uh, The low risk, Mr. Prater, uh, was re-arrested for uh, grand theft auto within the next two years. Hmm. So these algorithms are not perfect. They have a bias within them. And again, you have a female. That's got to be a bad thing, right? You have a person of color. That's got to be a bad thing. From, of course not. I mean, it, it's the algorithm working on the data sets that are fed to it begins to come up with some of these conclusions. And if we don't be a bit skeptical about the results, be a bit skeptical and understand the data going into these algorithms, yes, writing clever algorithms is 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 good. Um, but I, I don't th- I think the code is only part of the solution, as uh, Dr. Chachi, you know, said in my lecture. And now we've got these crazy things where, you know, we always had criminals and malware and hackers that are attacking our networks and our and our own personal, you know, kind of computing environments and all the rest of this. With turning stuff over to AI, we now have hackers attacking the AI. And, you know, this, this is getting really crazy, right? We've got there, there's actually AI malware attacking AI defense systems, and, and now we've got this cyber war where humans aren't even involved anymore, right? And it, it's getting weird. It's um
1: weird.
0: <laughs> But you can, uh, you can mess up AI models. Here's, here was a case here where they actually simulated a, uh, a voice. The, the adversarial AI, the bad guy AI, essentially you know, came in and it created this AI-generated voice that fooled the AI-generated, um, you know, support software with regard to this stuff, and they fooled the good guy AI, and they were able to um, uh, essentially, you know, impersonate the CEO's voice and demand a fraudulent transfer of almost a quarter million dollars. You know, go. This this stuff sounds like science fiction, right?
1: Yeah, it does.
0: But it's 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 real, and again, this is another part of the thing. Like. We don't have an awful lot of articles written about how my cybersecurity defense system got hacked by one of these things. We, I mean, the FBI knows about that. The Department of Homeland Security knows all about that. Are uh, but you know we don't. Companies don't like to go up and get in a conference and say, "Gee, look at how I got hacked." Right? I mean, nobody does those kind of papers either. <laughs> so you you kind of go into this stuff, and there there are uh, again it's AI versus AI. I mean, I remember back at when I was a kid, there was this thing called Mad Magazine, and they had Spy versus Spy. And now, now we've got AI versus AI. As you go through this, well, and of course, there—these are, are just some of the things. That are the 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 good guys are getting better every day. The problem is the bad guys are getting even better every day, and it's yeah. a constant escalation uh, in this cybersecurity sort of thing. And you know, I I actually do give an, another complimentary lecture on how to hack an oil field. Uh, that goes along with how to lie with data. So, uh,
1: well, I look forward uh, to that one.
0: <laughs> that's, that could be another thing that we could kind of talk about. Uh, and again, I don't teach people how to hack an oil field, but I do teach people on the fact that some of this malware reaches all the way down into SCADA systems, and can uh, essentially spin your turbines and your your uh, your uh, like your centrifuges if you are enriching uranium, and and it essentially can uh, cause a uh, industrial failure. And by the way, the people that wrote that algorithm were U.S. and Israeli um, uh, security uh, uh, agencies. So, you know, who's a a good guy and who's a bad guy? And kind of, it all depends. I want to um, finish on one note here that talks just about how powerful these algorithms are becoming. And uh, this is the kind of the scariest part for me with regard to these things um here is a poem so it's a poem actually about Elon Musk who we we all know and love um and is getting richer by the day with his new, uh, schemes um and it was it, it it's a poem in the in the kind of the genre of Dr. Seuss so you your kids books right if you remember when you're a kid the Cat in the Hat. Everybody had a Dr. Seuss book when I was young, um, so you you can read the the, the read the kind of poem. Um, you know, the SEC said Musk, your tweets are a blight. They really sh- they they really could cost cost you your job if you don't stop all tweeting at all this tweeting at night. Then Musk cried, "Why the tweets I wrote are not mean? I don't use all caps, and when I'm sure that my tweets are all clean, but your tweets can move markets, and that's why we're sore." You may be a genius and a billionaire, but that doesn't give you the right to be a bore. So, nice little poem. Who wrote that? It's an algorithm called GPT-3. That's creepy. It is essentially a speech translation algorithm uh, written by this company called OpenAI. It is the most powerful language model ever built. You know, the one before it, GPT-2, only had 1.5 billion um, uh, essentially parameters built within the model. GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters written into the model. So when you hear something, when you read something, did a human being write it or did this algorithm write it? We had the Turing test back in the in the 1950s where he um, essentially came up with a test that said, you know, he was trying to say, are computers intelligent? It was the question. And he developed this very simple test. He said, if you can engage and talk to a computer algorithm and you can't tell the difference between the computer responding to you and the, and the, algor- and the algorithm responding to you, then you would say the computer is, is intelligent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, The the algorithms have won. The algorithms have uh, superseded the Turing test long ago.
1: So the rise of the robots
0: is real. It's it's the rise of the robots. And and they're here. And you've got researchers, you know, every year improving what they can do. And it's already scary. But it's already valuable. So you can't say no. Resistance is futile. It's just you better... Be a good partner and question the data, the results, the physical constraints, the uh, you know the the are the are the correlations really causations? There's a whole bunch of ways that we are unconsciously using this technology to lie to ourselves, and that's what I want to raise the red flag on, and say, folks out there, let's be careful.
1: Well, to that point, Jim, the audience you're speaking to, we are engineers, we're scientists. We have a hard time looking at someone else's data and really going through it ourselves. And in a lot of situations, you're investing in the person, not the data. So to avoid this optical illusion of what might be bias corrupting our data or a misrepresentation of data, what are your suggestions um, and honestly tips and tricks for pushing back to the narrative of the data as opposed to just the flat blank images.
0: So um, that's a, that's a great kind of summarization sort of question what, you know, what, what do you do given the fact that I've tried to scare the pants off you on all this stuff? How do I, um, you know, make you feel better? One, I think, first of all, engineers and scientists should question each other's data. And I don't think it's a, that's a negative. I think that's a positive. And I think when someone comes in, I'd like to understand more about your model. And even if it's the manager sitting in a decision support room or to support meeting, excuse me, on a big project investment sort of scheme, it's okay, even if they don't understand anything about the code. Uh, even if they think Python is a snake, right, and not a, a, a scripting programming languages. It's okay to ask for them to ask about the data that went into it. It's okay for them to ask about physical constraints that they have learned over experience on how those were incorporated within the processing flow. So step one to be is data profiling. Understand your data. There will be weaknesses in your data. That doesn't mean you can't go forward. That means that you probably have to understand that you are dealing with uncertainty and you better not come out with a overly precise, overly um, confident result because it's not there. We're all going to have to learn with the world of of probability, right? There is a P50 and P50 has bad, 50% of them is bad results. So we have to figure out how to understand and learn to deal with that, that uncertainty. So data profiling. Two, teams of analysts with domain experts and data management steward experts working together on a lot of these projects, not one-person superheroes. Um, Three, you know, I think management has to feel comfortable about questioning the data. Um, Your peers have to be uh, comfortable, and you have to be comfortable of questioning your data. I I am an evangelist for all this stuff. I've been a digital oil field evangelist for over 20 years. I've just learned over time with some of this stuff to be a little skeptical as well. Now that's maybe an oxymoron to some, but, uh, and, and, and I, I drive uh, tech salesmen up the wall because uh, you know I'm the person that, that promotes their technology, but I'm the ones that ask the hardest questions of their sales pitch. And um, I think that's the way where we have to get to it. Uh, we can't just blindly delegate key decisions in our company, in our society to these algorithms.
1: So one of our final questions was how can adversarial machine learning help produce better solutions for oil and energy? Well, I think we have you a know, lot of misrepresentation of data floating around the energy sector.
0: Oh yeah. Without a doubt. And, um, and, and we do have this human bias of only wanting to share successes, right? And, and you combine the two of those and it's a dangerous combination. Um, So I think you know, in a sense, right now the adversarial AI is a is a human being with a lot of experience who keeps saying, you know, I don't understand how that helps me predict stuck pipe, or I don't understand how that helps me, uh, you know, optimize my artificial lift unit, you know, et cetera. Uh, Right, the adversarial part of it need not be um, uh, unconstructive; Uh, it can be a constructive and and processes that build all of this into the decision-making process are the ones that are going to produce better decisions. So there, you need to build this adversarial part into your decision-making. You need to build it into your model building. And I know there's a lot of people out there where they're just one of me, you know, sort of thing. So find a buddy, find a colleague. That's actually not just going to agree with, usually we go out and try to find people who agree with us. You know, I find somebody who goes out there and is trying to help you, but is disagreeing with, with you or challenging you and not disagreeing, challenging you on on your kind of an approach. So right now the adversarial role is, is not taken by another AI, unless you're talking about that cybersecurity battle, but it needs to be the human being with experience. So the experience is the adversary to the pure statistical. And when you battle that out and you feel comfortable that you reach the good balance, then you got a good answer.
1: That's awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. This is such an interesting topic and very, very um, relevant to what we're seeing happen in the field right now. So, I really appreciate you being willing to be the other side of the coin and talk about the, some of the potential limitations, the bias, the uncertainty that we need to understand. Because, to your point, big data does not mean good data, it has just as much bad data in it as useful. And understanding your gaps is non-negotiable. So, I mean, thank you again, and I can't wait to hear your uh, take on how to hack an oil field here in the future.
0: Maybe that's uh, the, the next uh, seminar down the line.
1: Maybe it is. Well, to everyone listening, thank you so much. Again, you are watching the SurTech webinar series. We have been leaders in enhanced oil recovery since 1978, and for all of those interested, we do actually have a monthly a newsletter that helps you stay up to date on all things oil, energy, and, of course, enhanced oil recovery. I am Catherine Mills. As I said, I am the operations engineer at SurTech. Um, if you ever happen to have any questions on laboratory capabilities, uh, IOR, EOR projects, please feel free to reach out to us through our website at www.surtech.com or email us at surtech at We're always here to answer any questions, thoughts, or help you review whatever is necessary so until next time jim this has been excellent and y'all we will see you soon stay safe bye y'all